The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, as is customary now, it seems... Before any of our podcasts, Jackie, I'm looking at the price of oil, and now there's real cause for concern, not only about inflation, which is a given, but also just overall global energy security. As the idea that uh, all Russian oil imports potentially are going to be banned in big consuming countries like the United States and other Western countries. And so this is gone far beyond just high oil prices leading to higher prices at the pump. This is now an energy security issue. And I know Canada as the fourth largest producer of oil and gas is being called upon in terms of what they can do about it. And of course, we've been constrained in our pipeline capacity. We've had line three open up earlier this year, but the one that has a lot of eyes still on it is the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So what more appropriate guest can we think of than... Ian Anderson, President and Chief Executive Officer, is going to join the podcast. But before we introduce Ian and get him talking, we wanted to just remind you and our listeners that uh, about three years ago, we heard from Ian. They can't believe it's been that long. Yeah, I can't believe it's that long either. It's just crazy how the pandemic and all these crazy events that we've had over the course of the last few months have just distorted time completely. They have. Yeah, I had to go double check that. So the, the Trans Mountain, as many of you know, is an existing pipeline moving 300,000 barrels a day. It's expanding to 890,000 barrels a day, and it will connect Alberta oil with the Canadian West Coast for shipment to Asia and the U.S. West Coast. And very importantly, as we're learned, thinking about energy security and optionality, we have the option to uh, move our crude on tidewater, not going to the United States. So that would be very exciting. Now, back when Ian came on our podcast so long ago, there was lots of things going on, things like the Canadian government was doing consultation with the First Nations. There had just been new rules, requirements to protect the marine environment, and the BC government was fighting the project on the basis of wanting to control the movement of hazardous materials through their province. So we're really excited to have Ian back on the show to give us an update on everything that's happened since then. Welcome, Ian. Thanks, Jackie. Glad to be with you. Hi, Peter. Hi. All right, so the topics we're going to cover today are the major project milestones since three years ago, latest cost projections, of course, that made a lot of news recently, and the next steps in terms of uh, delivering this pipeline and having it deliver its first oil to the West Coast. But before we get there, Ian, I wanted to congratulate you. Uh, You announced your retirement effective April 1st. We want to thank you so much for your huge dedication and incredible leadership on this critically important project for Canada which I think you started, am I right? It started in 2008, so you've been working on it for 14 years. Yeah, we started the early work uh, commercially, assessing what the alternatives to the project may be as early as 2008, 2009. So it's been a long journey to get to where we are. And, you know, as I'll talk more more in a little bit, we're making great progress and it's been a long journey. Uh, and, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, now is the right time to... Uh, to retire and um, watch it remotely. Well, congratulations on that. And I speak on many. I know. Thank you very much for all your hard work, your advocacy, and everything you've put into this. I know it's uh, 
probably one of the hardest jobs in Canada, to be honest with you. Well, it's been a long time and it's been a labor of love, though. I believed in the company and the project from the beginning through the Kinder Morgan days. The patience of the capital wore out and we had to find a different solution. And thankfully, Canada stepped in and has been committed to seeing it through. I've got a wonderful team here to uh, see it through to the end. Yeah, well, you know, I know you've put an incredible amount of effort for a long duration of time. So we just really thank you for your effort. But let's talk where the project is today. The major project milestone since 2019, there's been many when it comes to court decisions. Since that time, BC was rejected in their bid to regulate hazardous materials, which they thought bitumen should be one of them. There was a dismissal of First Nations appeal of the project approval that a appeal claimed that the federal government's consultation was rubber stamping, so that was dismissed. And the Supreme Court of Canada refused to hear an appeal from First Nations and environmental groups about the environmental review, and also later on refused to hear an appeal about the consultation process for Indigenous. So first of all, you know, lots has happened, and I don't want to go through all the ins and outs of these court cases, but how significant were these decisions? And do you think that they have marked the end of the legal challenges for the project? Yeah, thanks, Jackie. It's a good point to pick up on since the last time we talked, which doesn't seem like three years ago, but there you go. The legal challenges, the uh, regulatory challenges that we've had over the life of the project really have, I think, come to an end. You never know what might be advanced by somebody in the future, but, but we believe that we've defended successfully all the regulatory and legal challenges that have been presented. And What they've meant for the project, I think, is very important because it's not just defending the challenge that has been brought before us, but it always has given us reason to think about the project, think about how the project's defined, think about how the project is being communicated and how we have involved and considered local impacts and particularly on Indigenous communities. So while the challenges themselves may be behind us, We never assumed along the way that we were right on everything and and everybody else was wrong. We learned from the process and and we changed through the process. So I think they were, in their own way, a valuable contributor to building a better project. Well, I think we learned, at least from my perspective, that there wasn't a lot of clarity, for example, around what First Nation consultation is required by the federal government. Do you think that some of these decisions are going to make it easier for future infrastructure projects in Canada because they have better defined some of the the things that you ran into in terms of having court challenges? I certainly hope so. And that was part of my objective as we entered any of those challenges and required discussions is that we would learn from it and we would help create, you know, I'm often asked about what the legacy of the project is going to be. And there's the obvious legacy of having the pipeline in the ground, you know, giving market access. But I hope there's a legacy of of the things that we collectively need to do better as a society and a country to build infrastructure projects. And and I hope there's lessons learned in the amount of engagement and consultation and and local impact assessment that we've done. So I certainly hope that we will have learned from it. And I certainly hope that that's part of the legacy. Yeah, we do too. And I know with the Bill C-69, there seems to be more scope for things that need to be done, but at least there can be more clarity on some of these important things like consultation, I think that will be a help. Let's talk about the project. When do you expect the first oil to be shipped by tanker and what status, what's actually going on right now in terms of the construction? Yeah, a great question and great timing in that we are now 
really at any day now, we're going to cross over the 50% complete milestone as far as construction goes. As of last Friday, we were 49.2% complete and we're trying to track somewhere between half a percent and a percent a week. So we're very close to 50% complete. Our work on uh, at the Lower Mainland in Burnaby and Westridge uh, is well over 59, close to 60% complete. We've got 400 kilometers of pipeline in the ground. We're about 77 complete on the Alberta side. So we're making really good progress in Alberta. And we're anticipating uh, in-service uh, towards the end of 2023. My hope would be that we're moving barrels on the expanded pipeline before the end of 2023. And that would include movements to our expanded dock facility in Burnaby for markets offshore. All right. So we could be seeing tankers going out out of the Burnaby dock at that point. I mean, they already go out today, but a greater volume of them. Correct. That's the objective. We're really assessing hard. There's a complex regulatory process to go through once construction is complete, and it's called leave to open, where you demonstrate to the regulator that the assets you've built are ready to go into service. So we're starting that process as we speak uh, with some of the sections that are complete, like in Edmonton. So from that, what we hope is we can predict the requirements and the commitments we're going to have to make to the regulator so that we can make the leave to open process fairly efficient towards the end so that after construction completion in say the third quarter of 2023, we can be up and operating before the end of the year. Can you tell us a bit about the Indigenous workforce and some examples of partnerships? I know there's many of them, but if there's any specific ones to give us an idea of some of the work they're doing there. Yeah, we've got an awful lot. As you know, it was a focal point of uh, my work for the last decade at building Indigenous relationships and the related opportunities that come from that. We've got over 10% of the workforce today is Indigenous. I've got support agreements with 69 separate Indigenous communities now that is essentially 100% of the directly affected right-of-way communities. So we're now, uh, I would say, 100%. But for some of the inlet bands, the Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish, we're we're 100% uh, supported by the Indigenous communities along the way, uh, which doesn't always translate to individual support, but as communities, they're supportive. They've benefited from currently probably about $1.8 billion worth of contracts have gone to Indigenous-based companies or partnerships, which is a significant volume and a number I never expected to reach. And I have high expectations will eclipse $2 billion of contracts to Indigenous-based businesses. Virtually 100% of the integrity dig work on the existing pipeline is done through Indigenous contractors right now. So we're, we're really taking up the challenge of finding ways to create true economic reconciliation in these communities. And uh, like I said, that's part of the legacy that hopefully one will look back on this project as an example of, of what can be achieved if you really lean into it and, and take responsibility for it. The BC flood scene were quite a while ago, <laughs> it seems like given everything that's happened in between then and now. But can you talk about how much they set you back and the implications of all that happened there? Yeah, I mean, the floods were one in 500-year events. They were catastrophic. You saw the infrastructure damage that occurred on the Coquihalla Highway, etc. 
I mean, thankfully, our pipeline withstood all of the flooding that occurred. The pipeline was never breached and there was no leakage from the line. It did require a concerted effort over a period of three to six weeks to move rivers off of the pipeline right away that didn't exist before and debris and bridges and trees. So a tremendous amount of work was undertaken. We took a precautionary shutdown of the line just until we could assess its damage. From a project standpoint, we're still assessing what the impact is. Unfortunately, you know, the whole construction area around the Coquihalla and over to Hope has changed dramatically. The land conditions, the river conditions, the slope stability conditions that we're working in and around, our access roads into work sites have uh, to a great extent been changed. So we're having to assess the impact on the project. It's probably set us back, Peter, three months Mm. anyway. The troubling part is your construction window on the Coquihalla is so short anyway. And it wasn't soon after the floods occurred that snow came and really uh, shut down work up there anyway. So by the end of uh, this month, we should have a better assessment of what the impact is. We're going to have to get changes to some of our permits through BC for different forms of access. The other effect the flood had was in the Fraser Valley, as you know, it was the lake, Sumas Lake returned to its original place, if you like. And the water table there is just so high. We're really hoping for a fairly dry spring in the lower mainland so that we can get to work in the Fraser Valley. Right now, it would be virtually impossible to build pipe because that water table is just below the surface. Mm. So there's a number of impacts, but but certainly uh, we're very proud of the work we did in the communities that were affected by the flooding. We had tremendous workforce uh, out there and uh, industry kept gasoline flowing to the lower mainland. They rallied around and found ways to serve the market albeit in a, in a somewhat rationed state. And, um, you know, BC survived. And, and I have had a number of people comment on the reminder that is given everybody to what critical infrastructure really means, that, that it's easy to complain about or challenge infrastructure until it's needed. And that includes pipelines serving transportation needs in the Lower Mainland, for sure. Well, and uh, thanks to your leadership and, and your whole team's work to get that pipeline up and running again. Now, I, as you said, there was gasoline rationing in some areas of BC. Do you think in any way the situation has changed public sentiment? My perception is, tell me if I'm wrong, the lower mainland, Burnaby, these are some of the areas where there isn't a lot of support, but they were very impacted by the gasoline shortages. Has there been any change, do you think, in public sentiment because of that situation and the recognition of the energy it provides? I can't help but but hope and think that it would have changed the sentiment positively, Jackie, but I also know that people forget pretty quickly and they go back to life before. So we got a tremendous amount of very, very good coverage and good press and we were very close. I was talking to the BC government every day about progress with the line and getting it back up started and when that might occur. And I think... Our, our overall approach, I hope, installed a little bit more confidence and need for the infrastructure. As we know, the expansion is largely based upon offshore markets and, and market access to offshore demands, which uh, has, you know, comes with a, a different set of objections. But uh, I hope it's changed public sentiment to the critical nature of, of infrastructure and how hard people work to maintain that infrastructure. Yeah. And it's uh, 
there's been a lot of obstacles sort of working against you on on this, including COVID and the productivity losses as a consequence of that. So can you talk about that as well? And, you know, how much potential time was lost on that? And then we can sort of translate COVID plus floods into a discussion about the costs, which are substantially up as well. Yeah, the cost and the announcement we made a, a couple of weeks ago was certainly one that we didn't wish for and, and we hadn't been uh, planning for. But over the course of the last, give or take a year, we've been refining and updating our cost estimates. And that's that's largely stems from the fact that when the last cost estimate of $12.6 billion was put out, we were only really constructing a little bit in Burnaby. We'd only just started construction in uh, a pipeline in Alberta. And since then, so much has changed, including two years of COVID, where you lose productivity just because you need more workers that are more distanced. Your transportation and logistics changes. Your testing at all work sites. You're managing all the PPE. You've got doctors and nurses on staff for two years or, or more all affecting cost. What we also have come to learn over the last two years, Peter, is that there were w- things we needed to do to improve the project in response to many of those local observations that people were making. You know, I talked about the 69 support agreements. Well, the financial impact of those agreements over and above what we were tracking before is about $200 million. So that's $200 million going into those Indigenous communities that wasn't there before. We've rerouted after a lot of work with the Coldwater Indian Band around their community. That reroutes $100 million. We've worked with the Skeetchison and Tecumloops First Nations on rooting around Jackal Lake, which is just south of Kamloops, on ways to protect you know, culturally sensitive areas. And there's another $100 million. We've got the largest archaeological program underway in Canadian history. We can't hire enough archaeologists to be investigating the ground prior to construction. We've moved, at last count, about 150,000 amphibians off the right of way. We've moved over 100 anthills, all things that we didn't imagine uh, doing or having to commit resources to uh, prior. But uh, it's making the project better. It's reducing the environmental impacts. We're doing 77 more trenchless river and stream crossings than we had envisioned before, again, to make the project better and more environmentally responsible. So there's a countless list of things that we're just doing better. And COVID was one of those impacts that uh, certainly affected us as other projects would have been. So one of the upshots of the cost overruns, which we'll talk about here in a minute, is that actually the dollars are going back into the community, actually, in many ways. In many ways, they're going to uh, a workforce that's now 12,000. I had predicted at its peak two years ago, we'd be about 5,600. So more than double the number of workers in more places across the right-of-way, benefiting more communities and you know protecting more of the uh, environmental impacts that a pipeline like this can have. So Ian, uh, so you had said already the cost went from 12.6 billion, the estimate, a couple of years ago to now uh, 21.4 billion. And you, you did just tell us a little bit about the changing scope of the project, and that was a big part of it. I think that was the largest breakdown. You broke down some of that in, in your, when you announced it. I guess the question I had is, why were there all these scope changes if the project was approved 
Was this in relation to some of the First Nations consultations that occurred by the federal government and scope that came out of that? Or why did we have that scope change? Yeah, I, I don't think they are directly the result of the engagement with the nations as required under the challenge and, and the redo by the federal government. I think it's more, Jackie, us being committed to delivering a project for the nation that is as economically beneficial to all Canadians, including Indigenous peoples, and to have as little environmental impact as possible. And then once you get on the ground and you're building, you find that there are a number of things that can and arguably should be done different than what was approved on a, you know, on an engineering drawing. And we found geological conditions that were different than we expected. As I said, we found watercourse crossings that were more suited to trenchless construction. So it, it's a bit of the evolution of the project being on the ground and remaining committed to the, uh, the legacy that we plan to leave. The flooding itself is going to add about half a billion dollars to the project just through wow. time and delay and rerouting and re-permitting. The financing costs of the project, given its delay, is about $1.7 billion higher. You know, so so that's just the cost of financing the money on the project. It is demonstrating to all of us, and we'll talk more about it, I'm sure, the incredible complexity of building major infrastructure projects in this country. We've run into labor shortages. It's been a challenge. The economics are still strong, though. I think that that underpins it, and the tolls are still going to be very attractive to shippers. All right. The safety and security was another driver of additional cost. And I'm sure you've watched what happened recently with the Coastal Gas Link pipeline where their worksite was attacked. Tell us a little bit about what your costs are for safety and security as you enter the lower mainland where I perceive there is more opposition to the project. What are you thinking you're going to have to do there to protect workers? Yeah, the cost increase that uh, we projected there is about half a billion dollars from what we had previously forecast. And that's safety and security. So some of that relates to the what I consider to be the important and necessary safety stand down that we took earlier last year mm -hmm. after a fatality and a serious injury on the project. The easy thing to do would have been just continue working. I was comfortable for, with that and made the decision to stop all work on the project until I knew that the safety conditions for every worker were what they needed to be. So that's built into that uh, $500 million increase. I think the security aspect of it is, is about $120 million higher. Added security at all of our camps, added security at all work sites, added video surveillance, uh, et cetera. So I think that our security conditions at our work sites across the project, of which there are hundreds, are what they need to be under the circumstances to keep workers safe. CGL, remote location, uh, we're not as remote as they are. So we've got arguably a better access to law enforcement, better ability to move people in and out. Uh, very unfortunate what happened at CGL. We've watched it very closely, learned what we could from their incident, shared some of our program with them, in fact. But I feel confident and comfortable we can protect our assets and our workers with the program we've got at this point. How's the work going on the actual dock? At the export terminal? Yeah, the dock is about two-thirds built now. We're doing a little bit more foreshore work. With the third berth is now under construction. We've got the two platforms for two of the new berths uh, now in place. Significant amount of foreshore work going on there in order to 
put in the vapor recovery units and um, all the necessary infrastructure. The tunnel that was built from Westridge back up to Burnaby is about uh, a third complete and it's going very successfully with no impacts being felt by the community. So yeah, the Westridge facility was critical path earlier on. I would say it's not anymore. The, the Coca-Cola spreads what's critical path right now. So work's going very, very well at the dock. Right. So it's a, a lot of the major parts of the project that are left are in the interior then is what you're saying. Yes. And pipelining. You know, yeah. pipelining yeah. has become the critical part, not the facilities. We've yeah. got a dozen pump stations along the line that we're building, mm -hmm. new ones, and they're, they'll be yeah. finished this summer and, and ready to be you know, brought in service when necessary. So Ian, you had mentioned the cost overruns. Maybe just explain a little bit. Like my understanding is that the cost of the pipeline is in many cases, I don't know about your specific case, but the cost of the pipeline is paid for by the shippers. So when the price of the pipeline goes up, you know, the tolls go up and that could mean that it isn't as economic to use that pipeline. Maybe explain to me if that's the concern. Yeah, it's a great question, Jackie. Our uh, commercial contracts with our shippers and customers have them financially responsible for certain aspects of the construction costs. So, for example, they're responsible to cover the costs of steel in building the pipe. They're responsible for the construction in some of the more difficult areas like the Coquihalla or like urban Vancouver and including the Burnaby Tunnel. So in the early days, we predicted where we thought the most risky and less predictable costs were going to be. Those are to shipper account. So while the project has gone from 12.6 to 21.6, the shippers will be responsible for somewhere between 20 and 25% of that increase into their toll. So their toll will go up by 75 or 85 cents from what it was previously per barrel. The rest of the cost is uh, is on Trans Mountain and obviously goes to affect our returns somewhat, but there's still very positive returns uh, on investment and they're still you know very competitive with other regulated projects. So bottom line is our shippers will see about 20 or 25 percent of the cost increase mm -hmm. in their toll, but mm -hmm. not 100 percent. For our listeners that aren't aware, the West Coast price of crude oil is typically higher than the Midwest. And so you can absorb, uh, you can have higher tolls and, and still have a pretty economic situation versus the alternative, right? All other things being equal, we would hope they would see, I don't know, Peter, you'd know better than I, 10 or 12 more dollars mm -hmm. per barrel from that barrel that hits Tidewater versus a barrel that's sold in, in Central North America. And their toll on the pipeline, you know, as a result of this cost increase may go up, as I said, uh, yeah. 90 cents. Well, in today's price environment, that's not really significant. But having said that, per barrel, that just generates a huge amount of revenue for whomever owns the pipeline. Yeah, we're, we're going to go from today, my EBITDA earnings before interest and taxes is about 180, 185 mm -hmm. million a year. And that will go up to 1.5 billion right. the day after the pipeline starts running. Right which is a lot of cash flow to pay back, you know, the investment that Canada's made in the project, both yeah. equity and debt, and also to uh, pay for the ongoing maintenance sustainability of the line. Yeah, so that segues into the idea that the federal government never really intended to hold this long-term, that there always was 
a point once the pipeline was operational that they would sell it and or bring on more indigenous ownership, that kind of thing. What, what, what is the status or the thinking in terms of post-completion sale financing, so on? Yeah, the Department of Finance is running a process with indigenous interests, looking at what that partnership or, or acquisition may ultimately be. There's no doubt in my mind, or I think in anybody who follows it, that there will be a material indigenous ownership of this pipeline after the project's complete. And like I said, the department is, is well underway with that progress and, and talking to all interested parties. As far as further divestiture goes, the minister was you know quite clear a couple of weeks ago that that's still their stated intention. And when the time is right, they'll look at uh, a transaction. The value of, of the asset, the value mm-hmm. of the company goes up every day we're closer to project mm-hmm. completion. So when the opportune time is, I suppose, they'll calculate within the department to come to conclusion. And my team here will be ready and able to assist uh, as that time comes. One last question for you. As you know, Russia's invaded Ukraine and that's changing the discussion around energy in Canada. There's more more questions about what could Canada do to help replace uh, some of the use of Russian oil and gas. Now, if I go back in time to 2018, when when Kinder Morgan sold the pipeline because the uncertainty and risk was too high for a private company at that time, do you sort of see any potential for private capital to come in and and build more pipelines, whether it be gas or oil in Canada? Or or do you really think government is going to be needed because of the level of risk and uncertainty? Well, I don't have a crystal ball and I don't know what other capital's patience factor is. What What I would say, though, is Cost predictability is very, very difficult given the needs and commitments and compliance and regulatory obligations any major asset like this comes with. I think that whether that translates into needing public money to do it and make it uh, viable, I suppose is a question, but it's really hard and it's really difficult to attract you know, private capital to get projects like this uh, underpinned and, and completed. I think the place for government investment in major infrastructure projects is is probably needed more than ever, at least on the major scale. How many more new big pipes are going to be built in North America is, I suppose, the other side of the question. And I think given the state of energy transition and everybody's focus on the next opportunity waves that come with that likely means there aren't many more significant big pipes built in North America. But we'll uh, We'll see. And I think, uh, if anything, as I said before, the legacy that we're looking to leave is that there's a a bit of a roadmap on how to accomplish projects like this more successfully. So if you went to do it again, it wouldn't take Mm -hmm. 12 years. You could do it in much less than that, which would be more attractive to private capital. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh... At a time where we wish it was built today, given the current energy security issues that have come up. But, uh, well, thanks, Ian, for joining us. It's been great having you again. And we wish you well on your retirement and the successful completion of the next phases of the project. Well, thanks, uh, Peter. And thanks to you, Jack. You know, you've been strong advocates for the work we're doing here for many years. And, uh, Look forward to chatting with you another day. Thanks. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app 
that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.